but I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to episode 41 of the REACH podcast. And I know, I know I'm late again. Uh, this is turning into the podcast where I just continuously apologize for being late. Uh, but got some really cool updates. Um, just back from ACSM last week uh, or two weeks ago in Minneapolis, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, incredible amount of cancer content. I think someone tallied over 18 hours of kind of a combination of tutorials and symposia and posters as well. So just you know for me it was a sign of how far we're coming as a field and and how much exposure we're getting um and some really cool ideas and, and kind of talking to different types of researchers what what they've got uh, going on in terms of projects in terms of uh, looking at different types of exercise and different types of of uh, cancers and that kind of brings you back to a really interesting point about the podcast itself so i'm kind of getting two different perspectives on the podcast um as you know as you kind of probably gathered from listening to a lot of these episodes i'm kind of a story guy and i like to hear people's stories and their backgrounds and how they got to where they are and that's where the kind of patient perspective comes from that's where i like to hear from individuals who's gone through cancer or their loved ones and kind of get their story and the other part of that is the research perspective and i love hearing the latest research and i love being able to talk to people who have published in this area that can kind of really give you a better breakdown of their study and the, the kind of details of it and the, i've got kind of those two types of audience with the show so i've got a lot of people who kind of go you know scrap all the research stuff you need to do more stories and i'm really interested in the personal aspect and then you got people on the completely other spectrum and saying scrap all the stories i want more research so I'm trying to find a way of pleasing both and it's kind of been a little bit more story oriented the last, I don't know, three to four episodes. But I promise you all you research nerds, we have got some really cool episodes coming up. Another quick update. So if you're at ACSM or if you've kind of followed us on Twitter, my good buddy Keith Train Borowski and Sarah Weller as well, the three of us have kind of gotten together and decided to come out with this exercise oncology Twitter conference uh, for a couple of different reasons. Personally, I think this is the future. I think the cost and the time traveling to conferences um, is getting too much and people have different conferences back to back and got to be selective of where they go. Um, and it, So it's pretty difficult to access all these different conferences to get to the latest research and to network with the right people. Um, and then secondly, there's so many researchers, both in exercise oncology and clinical oncology and a lot of physicians and oncologists that are on Twitter that communicate regularly. So we kind of thought that this is a way for us all to get together and, um, and kind of share ideas. So the Exxon TC conference is going to be this year coming up in October. It's going to be the first of its kind, hopefully the first of many. We want to turn it into an annual thing. And again, I really do think this is the way forward. 
So we're going to come out with a website hopefully mid-July and on there you'll find details on how to sign up for the conference, um, abstract submission guidelines. It's going to be the same way any other conference would be. And eventually, as I said, we'll hold the conference itself in October. So I'm actually going to have Keith on in the coming weeks to kind of chat about all this. But that's kind of something just to look forward to in the future. So coming back to today's episode, I am a story guy and I love hearing the background of, of what drives people and what gets them to where they are. And these two people that I've had on for this episode are incredible. Tori Desenza, you might remember from a few podcasts back where she's got the Hero Cancer Health Program where she delivers free exercise training for cancer survivors in and around the Columbus, Ohio area. She's always looking for new people, so if you know anyone who'd be interested, give her a shout and get in touch with her. And Cara Walker, who is an incredible woman, she is actually in the process of applying to medical school at the minute. And I sat the two of them down because both of them are in their mid-twenties and both of them lost their mothers to different forms of cancer in their early 20s and suffered you know unspeakable grief and i've talked to them individually but to to suffer grief like that and to be the primary caregiver for your parent who is meant to be the person that's looking after you and go through all that uh, you would be forgiven for giving up you would be forgiven for choosing a different path but for both of them to go into the medical field into an area that has been inspiring to them because of what they've been through to bounce back from that grief and to be on a path to to real success is something that i love hearing about and it's such a positive vibe to be around so i loved getting to know their stories even more another thing i have to apologize with this episode is the sound is a little bit dodgy on tori's behalf her mic was a bit dodgy and she actually gets a little bit softer so i do apologize and some of her answers you might have to strain a little bit to get to them but overall, I just tried to sit back and listen. I w- didn't want to interject. I just wanted to try and guide the conversation to listen to what they've been through, kind of listen to their shared experience and being a primary caregiver for their mother and coming out the other end and, and now kind of seeing what drives them and, and what they get to look forward to in the future. So for me, it was a fascinating episode. Uh, I hope you get as much out of it as I do. And again, look forward for all those future updates in the coming weeks and we'll chat to you soon. People have a brief overview of... of what you went through, Tori, but, um, Cara, let's talk about, uh, kind of, your mom was initially diagnosed and then had a recurrence. Okay. Um, my junior year of high school, my mom was diagnosed with stage four cervical cancer. Um, she went through, uh, minor chemotherapy and radiation and she went into remission. Everything was fine. And then four years later, when I'm a junior in college at OSU, uh, the doctor said that it came back. Um, apparently, it had come back earlier, and they told my mom that they could get it at that point in time. And she decided against it, simply because she just didn't have a good experience the first go around with the chemo and radiation um, treatment and stuff like that. So by then, it had metastasized. Um, and she had a tumor in her leg, and then she had a a spot in her lung. So by the time my junior year of college came around, they gave her three options, and that was to either get her leg amputated from the hip down, um, to go through um, chemo and radiation treatment, which there was less than a 5% chance that she would survive, or to do nothing, and just to keep the quality of her life. 
she had called me up after her doctor's appointment and asked me what she should do. And I told her to do nothing. The doctors gave her six to eight months. And so we made the best of that time that we had. How soon did you start going home? Uh, I would say probably within the month of her being diagnosed. So she, the doctors gave her the six to eight months at the beginning of fall. So when school just started, um, I started going home within the month. Um, the thing was I didn't have a car. Uh, so my, I relied on my teammates to get me to and from Cincinnati at the time. Uh, obviously things aren't free, so <laughs> I would have to pay for gas to get to and from home. And eventually like I didn't have um, the money to be going back home as much, but I went home as much as I could to help out. Um, obviously they gave her pain medication to try to keep the pain in intact. But the thing, was is my mom was an athlete herself. So to see somebody that was so athletic and so active become so frail and just forced to be in a bed for her last days is just very tough. To, it's a tough pill to swallow, and especially for her. It's just, it hurts so much to move that I feel like her only option was to stay in the bed. Um, there was a lot of help from family, friends. They would come home. Um, they would be at the house during the day and take turns um, with shifts to make sure that my mom always had somebody there. But at the same time, it's it's different when like your kids aren't physically there with you, and you have to go through it with outside friends and stuff like that. You were there for most of it. You were acting as a primary caregiver when you were home. I think that was the hardest part. Uh, I remember the first time I broke down crying was uh, my mom needed to uh, get a bath and she physically couldn't walk. It was just too much pain. So I had to pick her up and place her in the bath and help wash her, bathe her, pick her back up out of the bath, lay her on the bed, dry her off, like put lotion on, put her clothes on. And it just, brought me back to a flashback when I was a kid and she used to do that to me. And I mean, we both had tears in our eyes. Obviously she's a little bit, she was a little bit embarrassed that, you know, she could no longer like, she wasn't as independent as she wanted to be, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I would, to this day, I would go back and do the same thing over and over again. I would do any and everything for my mom to make sure that she was good. Um, if she wanted me to sleep with her that night, I would get in the bed and lay with her. It's just the sacrifices that you make for the people that you love, you don't think twice about it during that time. So when people always ask me, like, how do you do it? You know, how could you, like, bear seeing your mom like that? And you just don't – It's I wouldn't call it autopilot. It's just like you're just – you don't you don't think twice about it. It's you at, when you wake up in the morning. Like your only goal is to make sure that your mom is as happy as she can be, not in pain. That she has everything that she needs. That she's taken care of. It's just that became my one and only job. Um, so, Tor, what was your experience? 
we just heard Ricardo talking about kind of being on autopilot and almost being numb to it. What was your experience in the last few months and kind of going, are you thinking about the imminent? Are you thinking about, you know, this is coming to an end or are you on autopilot or what's, what's that like? There's a lot of points where your tr- she's coach is asking you to be, um, be part of us, like be that student, uh, be the athlete, right? You're, I was granted permission to stay home for the semester, um, wasn't taking credits and was trying to train in the off season. And I had to find a facility by me that I could do that. But like every time that I was there, it was like even going out with friends became super hard because you, you know where your time, you want to spend it because you don't know what's left of it. So she was like, they told us that in August, uh, November came around. So about three months, um, give or take, uh, is what we got. Uh, was in hospice care, so we had some help. Family was there, so my sister was in high school, so me and her predominantly did a lot of the care. My dad was home, um, and my brother was out of college at Rutgers, so about 45 minutes from us. Um, so we had a good support, at least within that. At the end there, for me, uh, we had been relocated because of a storm, and we were at a family friend's, well, basically we call her my aunt, but family friend's house. Um, brought the hospice bed, like all this kind of stuff. We were living in someone's home as my mom was in about her last two weeks or days. She wouldn't really be in consciousness and there were some hours that she would be and she'd be requesting this or that and she was back to herself. So you're going in and out of this limbo of where's, there's my mom and then all of a sudden you're looking at it and you're like, there's a situation. So you're talking about how did you, did you feel numb to the situation? You kind of go back and forth in between these, wouldn't even say lucid moments, but it's, it's hard to kind of navigate that reality where everything is just so different than what you remember or what you would expect to go. And it is that autopilot. You're going through it. Everything, like, you wouldn't change it for the world. I would never change anything that I did in those moments. Because um, there's so many things that you got out of those moments of, like, yes, it was a crappy situation. It was what it was. But, like, you're still there with your mom. Like, you're, you're – it's, it's all, like – you wouldn't change it? No. <clears throat> I remember I was um, in my apartment room when my dad called me and he was like, sis, you gotta come home. This is probably like the last time your mom will be your mom. And that's like a hard thing to grasp because like when I hear those words, I automatically was just like, okay, she's about to die. Mm-hmm. So go home, my mom's my mom, and just talking, joking around with her. Um, Everything seems normal. They have social workers coming in to try to tell you about the process of dying. And at that stage, I think my dad was probably a little bit more realistic as to what was going on. And I think I was more so in denial. So to me, I was like, she's not dying. I don't need to know about these stages. She's fine. Look at her. She's up like laughing and talking. Um, But over the course of like weeks, you can see like bits of her aren't the same so like I would be in the room with her talking to her and then there would be like a like a gap in the response time or something like that when I was talking to her she would be zoned out or I'd have a whole conversation with her and then she just like wouldn't respond or something Mm -hmm. um she started hallucinating uh which was kind of scary um she would like watch tv shows and think that it was really happening in the house or she would start seeing people who had already passed, like her dad. And so I'd be in the room with her and she'd be pointing to somebody that wasn't there and be like, who is that? So it's um, kind of scary. And then um, my mom actually ended up having a stroke while she was at home. Um, 
we had hospice there as well at the house and they were like we think she had a stroke on um, one side of her face was like a little drooped um could not she would talk didn't form a single word um and was freaking out there was nothing we could do because she was the cancer had spread to her bones and stuff so to move her to a hospital was just mm-hmm. too much work um but i'll never forget it uh she could not form a single sentence and the nurses were like we don't think she'll ever talk again and when i was alone in the room with her i looked at her in her eyes and she said i love you like clear as day which is crazy and i was like i knew no matter like what happened to her my mom was still inside mm-hmm. um over the course of like the next couple of weeks she definitely t- deteriorated yeah. um and it's very tough to go into the room and see your mom in those types of like conditions and it gets to the point where it's kind of tough to see her living it's painful yeah it's almost like you're watching these things that you do every day uh no questions no brain and that she used to do all the time and it's like watching them feel that pain watching them not have any control it's that loss of independence you're talking about that first time that you and your ma um you know she couldn't move and you had to you know give her the bath and had a similar moment but it's just watching that those stages of independence you see it with older adults all that kind of stuff but you never imagined seeing it with somebody who was there to raise you somebody who was there to show you how to like all these things that just start flooding back and um it definitely makes you think a lot more about a lot of things um Mm. in the way that i guess a lot less about a lot of things when you're talking about small things like that but just painful in in how you see it go to that end um there was a moment when we were just it was one morning we were watching the prices right kind of what we made our thing to do um when i was home and she just started crying i think it was the moment that she realized you're talking about you know when you and your dad were kind of on different pages uh, we mm-hmm. had some time to prepare for that you know choosing to stay home choosing to know that it was there i think it was h- easier to see that every day and kind of be a part of that process in the sense of being able to grieve a little bit different. Um, but like she just looked over and she like grabbed my hand and it was like the moment where she knew she was going like that she was going to be out soon. Yeah. Um, and it was just like there was no words and it was just kind of like this moment of this is going to change for it. Like this your life and this is going to impact you kind of like a one of those moments there. Um, and then from there again you saw the decline and and so I got the so I was with her every day. Didn't want to leave the house, and we were relocated. Reclo- re- a friend of mine called me. He's like, "I got to go do this," and I was like, "At that point, it was two weeks." She had saw the pastor or whatever the priest that morning, but she, she was still in and out. Like there was one moment where she came to consciousness. She's like, "I want on Pepsi or whatever." Middle of a hurricane, you run out and you're trying to get Pepsi. They only have Coke, right? <laughs> that's it. That's all I have. You come back with Coke and you're giving it to her like the best you can through a straw, like not even it. We used a dropper actually. And uh, did you put some tape around it? Just write Pepsi on it? <laughs> no, no, no. So we put it. So we, she didn't even see the bottle. She didn't even nice. see the bottle. So you're taking it and you're giving her this dark liquid and she, she tastes it and she turns. She's like, that's not fucking Pepsi. Like immediately. And you're talking about the, this is like the last two weeks of her life and, and, and those snapshots of, of seeing your mom again and it's like, Got it. Yes. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. And it's just, 
And those are things I think that you carry with you. And those are the things that make it okay, you know, and allow that grieving process to happen in whatever manner that it does. And, and you look back on those and you're able to kind of say, yeah, I didn't forget who she was. I didn't forget everything that she's given me. I didn't forget all those things that she provided me. Um, but it is that piece that's missing those, the feelings of that laughter and that enjoyment. Like mm -hmm. those are hard to kind of recreate, um, especially in everything that you do. But I think that's kind of where some of our outlets I think have been in our future endeavors, um, being able to give that into like those feelings. It's, it's hard to carry those, but I think you can give those feelings back to somebody else. Um, almost like, a, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely understand. I mean, not to backtrack, but I am going to, um, <laughs> um so hospice was at our house and, the, usually when hospice comes, like, the person usually passes within, like, the week. And my mom had lasted the whole month. So they were like, there's really no reason for us to be here because she seems to be just steady. So um, they had left, and my mom wasn't really, like, eating or drinking. Um, and she didn't eat or drink for, like, 20 days, I think it was. It was, like, 20 or 22 days. And then randomly... One day she wakes up and she was like, I want some Wendy's. I want some Freshies. I want these cookies. And so we sent my brother to go get all of this stuff. And when she said that she wanted it, she meant like at that moment. So when, <laughs> so when like 20 minutes goes by, she's like, where's my Wendy's and my Freshies and my cookies? And you're just like, it takes time for it to get here. And I remember... As soon as she got that food, she ate it all. Like, she ate the fried chicken, the fries, mm -hmm. the sandwich. She drank the Coke, like, and I was like, that's it. It's a turnaround moment. Like, I was like, she's coming back. I don't care what anybody says. Like, my mom's going to survive this. And it was like, that was her last good day. And I think um, a lot of people that are going through um, cancer and they're dying, they have that last good day. And it gives people hope, like the fam surrounding family and friends, hope that it will be a turnaround. But I think that's like the body's last hoorah. Because after that, for us, she deteriorated very quickly um, to the point where like her breathing was very labored. She didn't speak anymore. She definitely didn't eat or drink after that. Um, yeah, it just went downhill pretty quickly. But like, that one day, it's just like that glimpse of your mom is just, it's great when you're going through that whole entire process and seeing them go through so much to just have her come back for that little bit of time. Especially when you're in the end there, completely see how um, a similar moment about a week out from the, the Pepsi story was the same thing. The storm hit and we were like, this is super shallow breathing, wasn't responding all day. Um, and we had the hospice bed at home and we were all there we got up in bed it was like midnight storm was hitting uh, i think it was a low pressure but like just really knocked her out and we we're like she's probably gonna you know this is gonna mm -hmm. be it this is the evening that next morning she wakes up she's like where are my lucky charms like again like you're talking yeah. about those moments and and then from there so it's it's a very interesting sight to see mm -hmm. um and you hold on to that especially going through that moment because it's it's what you've wanted to see turn around every day that you wake up you're like here's gonna be that turnaround here's gonna be you know in just hoping that it changes right um when did you realize it wasn't in in terms of talking about false hope when you're like 
man, that was her last good day. In retrospect, it's hard. Um, at least for me, it was in retrospect. Uh, didn't know what to expect going through the whole process on, you know, knowing that those days are going to come or knowing that moment's going to come um, or even just like the in and outs of how like you think she's not taking any medication anymore, she's not on any treatments and that's kind of what you associate with a lot of the t deterioration or decline in mental health, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff or cognitive uh, aspects. Um, so you're thinking, oh, quality of life. It's not like it's it's bare minimum quality of life you're talking about. And by bare minimum, what we expect to see when we're looking at on the research side, you're talking about improving quality of life. You're not at least in my experience, we haven't dealt with end-of-care patients, so how does that look on a completely different scale um, in quality of life as opposed to somebody who's already been through the ring or who's been through treatments, surgeries, all that kind of stuff is on medication that's only making them worse to see what does that quality of life actually look like. And it's those moments of ups and downs and really, really crappy moments and moments of, well, oh, I got somebody back that I lost uh, in, in just the realm of reality. Um, so more so in the retrospective kind of identifying, oh, that was a high or that was a low. That's kind of what it's been going through. So the more I've been around at least understanding the process from multiple perspectives is when I kind of realized, oh, that's what that moment was. What's that like then as you were a sophomore in college and you were a junior going into your senior year? I mean, 2021 and 18, 19. What's that like when it gets down to it's at a point now where we know it's any day now and that uncertainty in waking up and being like, is that the last time I've just slept with her? Is the last time I've, I've said goodbye kind of thing? How was that? For me, I was kind of talking about that before. Um, I didn't leave the house. I t was her caregiver predominantly. My sister was too young. My brothers weren't gonna go near my mom, um, kind of a thing in the sense of, you know, male, female. Um, again, it's a very vulnerable, in embarrassing moment for your mom to kind of release independence to who they feel comfortable with um, and those moments happened across time but being there that day the because it was going to be within that week that we were in there that day I left I was on the highway with a friend we were supposed to grab food and I I, I didn't say anything we we kept driving and I got a call. So it was the moment I left at, that my mom and my brother called me and was like, you have to get back here. You know, this is what's going on. I didn't even say bye. Like I didn't, there was no moment for me being at the end. Like I had been there up until that point. I was there every hour, almost every day. And I leave maybe an hour, not even. And uh, by the time I got back, they, they had all been there for it. Um, it's something I've, tried not to think about <laughs> you know the more you think sorry <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the worst part of this. <laughs> the grieving process um you, th you, th you think you have so much time to prepare for it and you're never gonna ever be prepared for that moment um so it was like if i was there would i have reacted any differently you don't know, you know, like you look back on it and that's the way it happened. And I guess the thing I tell myself is that she knew I was there up to that point and maybe it was, uh, she was waiting for me. Maybe it was, uh, that's the time she felt she could go, you know? Yeah. Um, I would say nothing prepares you for that moment. So like I said, my teammate's mom had passed from cancer. 
I went to the funeral and it was probably one of the toughest things to watch because it was, it's like I knew in a couple months from now that I would be going through the same thing, that I would be at a funeral and it would be my mom's and that I would have to go through what she went through. Now, like the days, like the final days, I don't know what was worse, like the days following her passing or the days leading up to that moment. Because like you said, like you did not want to leave. Talk about anxiety through the roof. Like you're just on edge. Like I didn't want to leave the room because I thought something would happen. I wasn't sleeping much. I would sleep in a chair next to her bed or like on the couch across from her room or like I wouldn't, I wouldn't stray too far because I thought something would happen. Now, the night that my mom had passed, I actually did leave to go um, to a graduation party. But that night, I knew that it was the night. Like, it's just like I, I had a feeling that, that it was that time. And I remember um, I had actually prayed that God would take my mom because it was just that hard to see her in that condition. And I came home that night. Um, I told her brothers, and it was I, and hospice wasn't at the house, so we did shifts with people just being with my mom at all times. And <clears throat> I remember saying, like, I'd take, like, the shift going from, I think it was, like, midnight to, like, 5 in the morning. I was like, I'll take that shift. It's fine. And my brother Kyle, he said that he would take it. He was like, no, it's fine. I'll take it. And I was like, okay. And I went upstairs, and I went to sleep, and... I had the weirdest dream. Like, my mom hadn't been able to walk or anything for months. And at that point, like, she didn't even, nobody carried her to the bathroom to go wash her. She was just, everything was done in the bed. Mm -hmm. And in that dream, she got up out of bed and walked, like, out of the door, down the hallway, to our back um, porch, opened up the door. I remember I was, like, running after her. She had, like, trying to like cover her in sheets because she was naked and she had opened up the door and stretched her arms out to the sky and the whole time in the dream I'm literally just trying to cover her with sheets and they just keep falling off and then uh, I woke from the dream to my brother Kyle tapping me and he was like mom died and it was the weirdest thing and I was like no she didn't and he was like, yeah, she did. And it's like, I went down the stairs to her room and it's like this feeling like something is gone. Like, I don't, like a, like her spirit, sorry, I'm like getting really emotional. Um, like her spirit's not there. Still, it's still air. Yeah. I remember walking back into that room and it's just, It's not there anymore. Like, yeah. you absolutely can feel it. Uh. Yeah. I could not bring myself to go through the doorway. Like, she looked like she was sleeping. It was actually the most peaceful she's looked in a while, and I still couldn't bring myself to touch her or anything. And my dad was like, she's still warm. Like, this is the last time you can touch her while she's still warm, and I refused to touch her. Yeah. Um, my other brother, Kendall, said his, he went down the stairs, he said his goodbyes, um, kissed my mom on the forehead, went back up to sleep. My, <clears throat> my grandma came, said her goodbyes, um, and then the nurse came, and 
my dad had asked me to go like get her ready like to just take everything like off that you know was giving her medicine and stuff all like the tubes and stuff and I remember going in there to like get her all changed and taking her clothes off and I remember like I will never forget that sight because it her body just looked like pain like I could see if you could see all the pain and the suffering that somebody went through when they were going through like their cancer um, stuff, that's what it looked like. Like her bones were protruding out of her skin and her thigh was as skinny as my bicep, which is insane. And the thigh that had the tumor on it was huge. Like I could see the tumor through the skin, bed sores were just crazy, just open sores on her back and the backs of her legs and stuff like that. Um, and I helped clean her up, got her dressed, and then um, the funeral people came. And I think the toughest moment was when they put her in the body bag and zipped it up. And I don't know, even in that moment, I still had a little bit of hope that she would like breathe, you know, and I remember when it was like nearing the top and I just like wanted them to leave like a little bit of space. Just that little piece. Yeah, just in case she needed anything, but yeah, it was tough. If you talk about aspects of grief or the, you know, the stages, what was the thing you struggled with the most? Was it denial, was it guilt, you know, kind of things like that. What, what did you have the hardest thing or hardest part moving past? I think the hardest part moving past for me was the fact that I couldn't save her. I put, I mean, I was the main decision maker as to what her next steps were after she got her diagnosis. So what happened in the months following, I put that all on me, all of her pain. I blamed myself for because I told her to do nothing. Um, so, <clears throat> the months following her passing, I had nightmares. And in every single nightmare, it was a different situation. My mom was about to die, and I couldn't save her every single time. Um, so that haunted me for a while. I went to counseling um, and stuff for it, which helped. Um, but yeah, I was, I was really, really hard on myself for the longest. There was a period of time where I didn't understand how down like you could really be when you don't have that somebody in your life anymore. I was really depressed, didn't want to leave the house, didn't even want to go to practice. I stopped going to class. Um, I would sleep um, the day away if I could, but when I was having the nightmares, I wouldn't sleep at all. So it was just hit or miss. Uh, I don't know, I was very, to be honest, during that time I was very suicidal. I, there were train tracks outside of my house uh, where I lived and I used to close my eyes at night and just listen to the train go by and I would just, it took everything in me every night not to just go out to that track and lay there and, I mean nobody understands what you're going through but like, the way I would, like I described it to my brother was like, I'm in so much pain 
living, I feel like it would make no difference if I wasn't here. But, um, I mean, the reason why I didn't do it was because of my brothers. Because my mom was the glue of the family, and when she passed, I became the glue, and they were like, what would I do without you? And you have to realize, sometimes you have to step outside of yourself and realize that your decisions don't only impact you, but they impact those around you. So to make a decision to end your life, um, in my opinion, is selfish because you're affecting, you don't realize how many people's lives you're actually like impacting and stuff like that. I feel like just being at such a young age, and by young, 18, 19, you're on your own, you're at college, but uh, came from a situation where she did a lot for all four of us, for everyone around her. Um, and you look back and you're like, I wasn't grateful for any of it, or I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't call her that night, or I didn't, you, you go back on everything, and you think about everything you could have done different. Up to the point when August came, it was, I'm gonna do everything that I can, but what about the other 18 years of my life where you're looking at, uh, yeah, she's mom, she's gonna do it, but the questions, like we weren't as close. Um, I think growing up, she had been through a lot. Um, so she was, she was hard around. Um, so getting into kind of like that relationship, we didn't have, we did, we absolutely did like uh, in the sense of, I felt like you look back on it, could have been, could it have been deeper? Could it have been, could I have been more um, involved? You know, as a kid, you're looking at, you know, I'm going to this place, I'm going to that place, and all the things that were so trivial in life, you're like, why did those matter? Like, why did, um, I don't know. And it kind of brings it back to the small things of, like, did they matter? What were those, like, how do you bridge those gaps of, it, it makes you realize in all relationships you have going forward, like, brothers, sisters, friends, family, like how much more you appreciate those because all of a sudden it's gone. You don't have that. You can't call them back. You can't. Um, and even to this day, like you're talking about what was the hardest part is like it continues. It doesn't end. Like mm -hmm. those feelings still come and and it's recognizing those and, and being able to rely on those support systems that you do have, um, I think. And it's no one, like, like Kara said, like no one's going to ever understand what you're going through by any means. Um, but there's people out there who are, regardless, no questions asked, are going to be there um, for whatever it is you need, whether it's walking, you know, what it is. So don't, like, kind of reaching out to those people of around you saying, you know, making sure they know that you care about them, making sure that they're feeling that you care about them. Um, I think it goes a long way. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's make it a little bit more upbeat here. Uh, we're going to move on to what you are doing now and how this has impacted you. But let's kind of close that part off with what is your fondest memory of your mass or even parts that made you laugh the most? That's the hardest part, I think. You for, If you don't remember, it's gone. Like if you don't consciously, and it's a lot of times the, the when for me the grieving process was just like, push it off, get through, you have other things to worry about. And I think I lost out on keeping those things close. Uh, 
Because that's like you can look back. I have one voicemail left, and that's it. And like you look back, and you're looking at oh, these are the only pictures we have, and they end in 2012, and that's it. That's all you have to look back on. That's all you have to kind of carry forward. And it's like, but then again, you look at it at the end of the day, and you're looking at a different perspective. Like there's so much more that she shaped me to be to kind of look back on. Like there were so much out things outside of that. Um, I don't know, fondest memory. Uh, my mom. And I always used to, like, physically get into it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we would wrestle. Like, if I uh, – sometimes I had attitude – a lot of times, I'll be sometimes. honest. Sometimes. A lot of times, uh, my attitude wasn't the best. And <laughs> <laughs> so to get me out of that, she would literally, like, tackle me and, like, hold me down until I laughed or, like – she would jokingly like hit me with a broom or something, like something just so little. Um, but I don't know, I can look back at the pictures that I have of us or her with other people and I can literally like relive those. Like I can still hear her laugh when I see a picture or like I can still remember her laugh. It was excessive. Like <laughs> <laughs> just if someone could hold out a laugh for like a whole minute, that was her laugh before she breathed. So. Um, yeah, those are things that I look back on and I love. And she was very hands-on with my brothers and I. Um, up until, like, I think high school, she could beat me in a race. So, Damn. yeah, she was pretty, she was pretty badass, if I'm going to say. Yeah. So, I don't know. So... Let's talk about we talk talking about purpose. H how does that memory live through you in giving you that purpose? You, Tori, were hero, and you working. <laughs> you have a name. <laughs> <laughs> you, Carla, being a, a a PCA and working in the trenches with patients. I mean, I hear stories of you and how caring you are and how your purpose is to make these patients feel as comfortable as possible and make their experience as best as possible. How do you think that your life events have shaped where you're at now? You want to give somebody what you would have hoped to receive, I think, in the situations that we've been through. I'm sure Kara's been to the doctor's appointments, the same thing, all those kinds of things, and have seen, um, myself included, you've watched the whole process happen, and what you expected going through it and then what you can look back on um, is being able to make somebody feel comfortable in that situation knowing how shitty it was. Like being able to make somebody feel um, like they are cared, they are valued um, for wherever they're at. And like even just with being a daughter uh, and, and seeing some of the independence and like having them lose that, they're doing that same thing with the people that they're going to see the doctors for and that they're going to do all this stuff. Um, with Hero, um, for me more personally, that decline, you see it, you saw it for months, whether it was during her first segment of treatment, um, the reoccurrence or the final stages where she was put, you know, at home, quality of life. Uh, she struggled with weight, um, with a lot of the medications she was given and she wasn't given any direction on how to help that, how to mitigate that. So for me, it's those memories of her, like, getting frustrated and getting, like, you know, having that high energy, she she put everything 
down for us. Like it was, it was all four of us. Um, she made sure everything was taken care of, uh, as if nothing had happened to her. Like she carried herself in a way that nothing changed. She was doing what she had to do. Um, but you could start to see it start to take her down, start to take her down in these, in this decline and, and that's going on everywhere. You're seeing, you know, people are going through that, you know, um, families are going through that and just how important it is for not only families, but for, for patients, but to see that translate into what's going on at home. <coughs> Having heroes an outlet for people to take control of an aspect of their life that they're not getting guidance on. Um, a lot of times you see people, they're not referred, they're not given any outlet to a ways that they can even just improve function. Uh, it goes such a long way. Um. Well, for me, uh, one of my mom's last days of like her actually being like with it, um, I had, my dad told me to tell her something like anything. And when it comes down to that moment, you think about what's really important in your life. And so I thought like really like long and hard about what I would say and I told her what my future was going to look like because I knew she wouldn't be there for it. And one of the things I told her was that I was going to be a doctor. And ever since she passed, I have been taking all of the steps that I need to in order to become the best doctor I could possibly be. Um, and after that, things kind of fell into place for me. Like I was, uh, it was exam week and um, I was warming up for practice and this doctor, um, his name is Dr. Paul Weber. He's like just this older gentleman that was just running around the track. And he came up to me and he asked me what my name was. I told him. And he used to be on the medical board at Ohio State. And he's an ophthalmologist at the Eye and Ear Institute off of Olentangy. And he was like, hey, why don't you come in and like sit down with me sometime? Um, and I ended up interning in his office for like a semester. Um, with um, this neuroscience internship. Um, so I was going to the rooms with the doctors, meeting the patients, like like writing down um, like the different cases and everything. So I did a case, I had to do a case by case study for that. And I learned a lot from that and my connections that I made with the doctors there. I ended up getting a Pelotonia Fellowship in which I did cancer research on uh, uveal melanoma, which is cancer of the eye. And so I went from seeing these patients hands-on to working behind the scenes with uh, test tubes and pipettes and stuff. So you didn't see any patient, but you the research I was doing was groundbreaking, and it would help save the lives and help hopefully give more time to those who have cancer. Um, and then from there, I took a little break, and then I got a job as a PCA, um, which is a patient care assistant, for those who don't know what that is. Um, what did I say? You just said PCA. But I said it back in the start, didn't I? Tori, patient, Tori patient back care up. associate, maybe, came out? Yeah, associate assistant. Listeners, please respond <laughs> to whether I said PCA or not. I you said abbreviate, PCA, I but said, you said associate. Don't you dare attack me. I'm not. I'm <laughs> I feel triggered. <laughs> okay carry on PCA so um, I got a job as a PCA and 
Um, what a PCA does in the hospital is they're the first line of contact with the patient. So if you're ever in a hospital, the person that you see the most would be me. Um, I do your blood draws. I like take your blood pressure, your temperature. I'm the one that's helping change you, change your sheets, take you to the bathroom, do any and everything to make you feel comfortable. And um, I think it's important for people to hear stories like Tori and I's because uh, there will be times in your life where like, it's, I mean, it's not a straight path and there will be times where you get lost, you don't know your purpose and stuff, but sometimes you just need to stick through like the nitty gritty to get to where you wanna go. No, I didn't like working two jobs. I didn't like working basically seven days a week. I didn't like going to organic chemistry class. It was terrible, but I have to stick it out to get to where I wanna go. And you have to, you have to have like a, just like that determination to get through all of that in order to get there. And a lot of people, I think they just look for handouts, um, but they don't realize that the most rewarding things are like the little zigzags in the mountains and the pebble in your shoe and stuff like that. That was a lot of analogies. <laughs> <laughs> Two birds in hand, each one of the soul. <laughs> How has learning about each other's stories impacted you or helped you? initial thought is comforting uh, in the sense that there's been so much sadness and so much grief and so much of pain and hurt that you feel um, and it's knowing that you're not alone in those feelings and they're not going to be they're going to differ we both went through you know as much as we like to be like the, completely the same in a lot of aspects so much of it's been so different and the past it, like she's talking about no path is going to be the same um, and it's kind of when you're in these moments, you're, you've got your family, you've got all this stuff, but being able to recognize with somebody, you know, seeing where each other's at, like being able to like see where Kara's at now um, and kind of hear where she's gone through, uh, it just makes you realize like, it's incredible to hear those stories. It's incredible to see what each person's gone through um, and I think it just shows the importance of how, like, you're involved with patient care. So how much do you interact with um, not just patients but families, uh, like caregivers, all that kind of stuff, like, in your, like, day-to-day? -day? Um, I work nights. So most of the time a lot of people are gone. But the families that do spend the night with their patients, like, or with their family members, I'm there interacting with them. Um, I think people often forget that other people are affected by what the patient's going through. Mm -hmm. um, it's, which I think is so cool that we're even talking about like our experiences from the other side because you can hear the experience from like the cancer patient, et cetera, but it's also nice to hear how their families are affected, um, how the kids are affected husbands, wives, etc. Like it uh diagnosis doesn't only affect one person. So yeah. And that carries a lot of weight going into I think we're so like the fields that um you just have this encompassing compassion and like level of like empathy for the whole situation. Um for everything that you know they're experiencing, you know, the the, the the laundry list of side effects, but they're also dealing with this extra level of um, of 
extra layers of, you know, emotional and like distress. Um, and how do you, you, uh, at least as an exercise, from an exercise background, you're looking, all right, how can this affect, but, but how do you encompass, how, how does this affect, you know, strength, functional limitations, all that kind of stuff. But can you, can you expand on that? Can you give that patient care, um, client care, uh, beyond that what are your means to be able to help beyond that and support beyond that uh, which is an interesting aspect i think i think you and i are going to need to do another episode on that because I, I you hit the nail on the head and we as exercise physiologists researchers whatever get so myopic in going oh well you have cancer well now you got to do strength training oh now you got to do three sets of ten and now you got to do run at this intensity without realizing that this is a person dealing with treatments dealing with telling their family everything dealing with the financial aspect there's a lot going on that has disrupted their whole life and for us to come in and just go oh now you got to do this and do this and this when for some people exercise isn't what they need mm-hmm. they just need to be with their family they need to enjoy their life they need to have that pizza have that ice cream you know they they need to do what they love we can say it and shout it all day and all night but um there are people that exercise is really appropriate for and there's people that we need to be very careful in getting too preachy about it too and saying it's there if you want to help and we know how to help you but it's not a should 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 because they're telling being told they should in every other aspect of their life mm-hmm. so just giving them a resource and a comfort from distance and saying it's here for you if you want it so that's a great point. That's the thing I think I struggle with the most in seeing how much it can benefit and knowing, you know, we know the X, Y, and Z's, but going back to my experience and watching my mom, even through high school, you're not going to sit there and tell her, don't stop for the Dunkin' Donuts. Don't eat those Twizzlers. You're like watching it because you know all these things are happening. Like in the back of your mind, you're not telling her that. You know what I mean? But in the back of your mind, you're watching this from a health perspective. Um, but then again, you're like, live it like you're you've got this time left you're gonna do what you want to do you're gonna um like allow like you're talking about enjoy the pizza enjoy those moments i think that's just again a huge part of that success um for patients for clients benefit well-being 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 well Tori. thanks for your answer (laughs) all right we're gonna keep yapping we're not gonna keep yapping that will definitely be i'm gonna get you back on i'm gonna talk more in depth about the stages of hero that it's gone through because i think it's been unbelievable to watch so far and the sky's the limit for you i mean that with with your ideas if you can if you can get all those butterflies down into that box and and the the potential you have to change the lives of so many people is limitless and i know this is talking about this type of stuff is is not easy for either of you it's even more hard or even more difficult to put it out there into the world and, and have friends, family, strangers listen to your story. But I know so strongly that the people listening to this will take the same inspiration I have and take so much from it. And for that, I have to thank you so much for both of you getting so raw and, and honest with your experiences. Thank you for the opportunity to allow us to share that. Tori, if you ever be that form with me again, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna call it. Here. Thanks, guys. Good. Cool.